Hi, this is Mike Delavan and Mike Posey, and, and you're, you're listening, listening to the Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome to part three of our sermon series titled The Countercultural Christian. Today is Sunday, June 19th. It's Father's Day to all the dads out there. A very happy and blessed Father's Day to you. I hope you have an absolutely marvelous day. Today, as we're continuing in this series, The Countercultural Christian, we're going to ask the question Are you working for God's glory? There's a lot to share with you, got a lot to unpack. This study is in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. If you're joining us for the very first time, welcome. You can catch up with parts one and two on this media platform at your convenience, and we hope that you will. But before we get to any other part right now, as always, we start with a word of prayer. So let's do that. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we have in Christ to come and hear from your word today. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to bring this word to everyone. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have to dive in and just see how this is applicable to us. This idea of being a countercultural Christian is really unique in our time right now. And I pray that we will gain greater strength and insight into how to walk this walk with you so that we can win others for you, to you. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. All right, the main scripture reference we have today is Ecclesiastes 2. As you heard me just say in the prayer, this series, The Countercultural Christian, is based on Ecclesiastes. So we're in the second chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 26. So get out your Bible or Bible app, open them up to Ecclesiastes 2, verse 17, and follow along as I read. Here we go. So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I've earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless! So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. But if a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes the wealth away and gives it to those who please him. This too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Back in 2009, a 16-year-old British girl was fired from her office job because her manager saw on Facebook that she said her job was boring. She was called into the manager's office and given the following letter, quote, Following your comments made on Facebook, we feel it is better that, as you are not happy and do not enjoy your work, we end your employment with our company. End quote. She was fired because she was bored with her job? 
Well, it was a good thing Solomon was king because he said pretty much the same thing about his job. He not only found his job boring, he wrote in verse 17 of the text, So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. So not only did Solomon find his job boring, he found it empty. But he's the king. He's got everything a man could want. How could he possibly be bored? Quite a few years ago, former Republican Party chairman Lee Atwater said this before he died. The 80s were about acquiring wealth, power, and prestige. I know I acquired more wealth, power, and prestige than most. But you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. Whoa, you can have all the wealth, power, and prestige and still feel empty? Well, that's bad news for the younger generation. Back in 2007, a Pew Research poll surveyed 579 young people between the ages of 18 and 25, and one of their findings was this. 81% of these young people said getting rich is their generation's most important life goal. And according to an October 9, 2014 article by Pew Research, the numbers haven't changed much. These kids want to be rich. They want to have money. Why? Because money can buy things. They think that the richer they are, the more possessions they have, the more they're going to be happy. But both Solomon and Lee Atwater are telling these young folks, that's a pipe dream. Solomon and Atwater are telling us that even if you had all kinds of wealth, power, and prestige, it would not guarantee happiness and fulfillment in life. One of the most extreme examples of this is the story of Howard Hughes. In 1966, he was named the richest person in the world. His fortune was estimated to be more than $40 billion in today's dollars. In 1967, while on a trip to Las Vegas, Hughes wanted to stay at the Desert Inn Hotel but couldn't get a room there. So as the story goes, he purchased the hotel and took over the whole top floor. Then he proceeded to purchase the Sands, the Frontier, the Silver Slipper, and the Landmark Hotels. Money was his answer for everything. Hughes was also nicknamed the world's greatest womanizer. He dated various beautiful Hollywood actresses, including Ginger Rogers, Olivia de Havilland, and Katharine Hepburn. In his prime, Hughes was a daring aviator and tireless tinkerer who spurred science to new heights. He was an industrialist, entrepreneur, and world record setter. He built the largest airplane ever to fly. Do you know what it's called? That's right, the Spruce Goose. Howard Hughes had it all, the power, the prestige, and all the possessions. But despite all of that, for the last 20 years of his life, Hughes lived alone. He refused to appear in public or to be photographed. He became a hypochondriac with an unnatural fear of germs. He refused to cut his hair, his beard, or his nails. And the only people who saw him were his doctors and his personal servants. And when he died, he died alone and nobody cared. And so Solomon says in verse 17, once again, everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. So back to the illustration about that young girl who thought her job was boring. What is it about a job that would make it boring? According to a recent blog I came across, here are some reasons you might find your job boring. Number one, it isn't challenging. Number two, you can't connect with the workplace vision or mission. 
Number three, you don't have enough work to do. Number four, the day-to-day -day work isn't interesting. Number five, you don't feel appreciated and or rewarded for your efforts. Number six, you don't think your work is really making a difference. Number seven, you're not growing in your career. Number eight, the job is not a good fit. Number nine, you don't have a work-life balance. And number 10, your temperament doesn't allow you to just stick with one job. Now, in my opinion, boredom is all a matter of perception. Just to prove my point, I want to share with you a popular set of office rules that date back to the 1800s. In fact, these were the actual office rules posted in 1872 by Zachert U. Geiger, proprietor of the Mount Cory Carriage and Wagon Works somewhere in Kentucky. Rules like this were commonplace for most offices of the day, and this is how they read. Number one, office employees will daily sweep the floors, dust the furniture and showcases. Each day they must fill lamps, clean chimneys, and turn wicks. Number two, windows must be washed once a week. Number three, each clerk will bring in a bucket of water and a scuttle of coal for the day's business. Number four, Make your pens carefully. You may whittle your nibs to your individual taste. Number five, the office will open at 7 a.m. and close at 9 p.m. daily, except on Sunday, on which it will remain closed. Each employee is expected to spend Sunday by attending church and contributing liberally to the cause of the Lord. Number six, men employees will be given an evening off each week for courting purposes or two evenings a week if they go regularly to church. Number seven, after an employee has spent 13 hours of labor in the office, he should spend the rest of his time reading the Bible or any other good books while contemplating the glories and building up of the kingdom. Number eight, every employee should lay aside from each pay a goodly sum of his earning so that he will not become a burden upon the charity of his betters. Number nine, the employee who has performed his labors faithfully and without fault for a period of five years and who has been thrifty and attentive to his religious duties is looked upon by his fellow men as a substantial and law-abiding citizen, will be given an increase of five cents per day in his pay, providing a just return in profits from the business permits it. Now, how many of you would sign up for a job like that? Show of hands. Come on. How many? Yeah, that's what I thought. Compared to those who worked there at the time, we've got it pretty good today. But my point is this, boredom is a matter of perspective. It's all in how you think about your job. A job is boring if you decide it's boring. You see, when Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, his intention was to paint a picture for us. The main focus of his picture was to expose you to things of this world that entice us, the things that we think will make us feel fulfilled and happy. And once he painted that picture, he pointed out why those pleasures of this world would disappoint us. He said that everything on this earth that you treasure will eventually bore you. They'll all seem empty and worthless in the end. And they'll seem empty and worthless until we put one thing in our lives. And that thing, better yet, that person is God. At the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 12:13 these words, here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty.
But when Solomon dealt with this issue of work, he didn't wait until the end of the book to tell us the key to turning our workplace existence into an exciting place to be. In verses 24 and 25 of the text, Solomon wrote, So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? In other words, if you put God at the center of your life, everything else will fall into place. If you don't, it won't. In Psalm 127.1, also written by Solomon, we're told, Unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. It's the same message, folks. If God is not the center of your life, it won't matter what you build, it will all be in vain. But by contrast, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Be strong and immovable, or courageous as some of your translations will say. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Now folks, Paul wasn't writing to a bunch of Bible college students at Corinth. Paul was writing to fishermen and merchants, farmers and sailors. He was writing to people from all kinds of walks of life, people who had to work for a living. And Paul wasn't just talking about churchy stuff, because in Colossians 3.17 he writes, And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. So Paul's telling us, if we do what we do in the name of Jesus, then nothing we do will be in vain. Now, how does that work? How can we do what we do in the name of Jesus? Well, first, let's contrast doing things in Jesus, as it said in that verse, with what it's not. A preacher named Steve Rigel told of riding next to a guy on an airplane. We've been having a polite discussion about where we were from and what we do for a living. I even think he enjoyed what he did for a living, but he did not enjoy the fact that he felt like he had to work. He just could not see a reason or purpose for it. He made it seem as if work was a, quote, nose to the grindstone, end quote, existence filled with drudgery and meaninglessness. The man didn't know how to do all that he did in the name of Jesus. But if you do what you do in the name of Jesus, this is what it will look like. First, number one, your primary objective will not be to gain possessions, power, or prestige. Not that there's anything wrong with having possessions, power, or prestige. It's just that's not why we work as Christians. Our work belongs to Jesus, not to us. So as a result, our jobs are not what define us. Our jobs are not the most important thing we do. Our jobs are not how we measure success. Our jobs are our way to make a living, and they're not how we make our lives. Second, if you do what you do for Jesus, you'll work because it feels good to work. It was what God designed you to do. In the law of Moses, Exodus 34, 21, God commanded, You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but on the seventh day you must stop working, even during the seasons of plowing and harvest. We weren't designed to sit back and be lazy. When we do that, you know what happens. Our bodies begin to decay and fall apart. Third, if you do what you do for Jesus, you'll work to supply for your family. 1 Timothy 5.8 tells us that 
Those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. But some people confuse caring for their family with working to give them possessions. Years ago, a man bought a water purifier for his home from a local company. That company eventually sold out to another company in a larger city nearby. One day, the bladder went out and the repairman from the larger city came to replace it. The man struck up a conversation with the repairman while he was working and made this comment, I guess you much prefer doing business with folks from the city. They've got larger businesses and pay higher wages. The man said, oh no, we prefer much more doing business with you here in this small town. You folks pay your bills. He went on to say that the workers in that other city did make more money, but they felt they had to spend it on things. If their neighbor got a new car, they'd get a new car. If the neighbor bought a boat, they bought a boat. If their neighbor went on a vacation in the Bahamas, they'd go on a similar vacation. He said, before you know it, they put themselves so far in debt that they have to work overtime just to pay the bills. Those folks had confused getting bigger and better things for their families with supplying for their families and their children rarely saw them. Fourth, if you do what you do for Jesus, you'll work to have money to give to God. Proverbs 3 verses 9 and 10 tells us, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. Beloved, giving to God isn't an afterthought, and it sure shouldn't be for us. It clearly wasn't with these folks as Proverbs addressed. The more money they make at their job, the more they can give to God. Maybe you've heard this story, but Kentucky Fried Chicken was founded by a man we call Colonel Sanders. Well, Colonel Sanders at one time owned a profitable restaurant that was forced out of business when a superhighway rerouted traffic away from his location. One of his popular dishes at the restaurant was his chicken, and so he set out to franchise his unique blend of 11 herbs and spices. But before he did so, he sat down and had a talk with God. He promised God that if he would make him successful, Sanders would donate 50% of his profits to God. So the non-instrumental Church of Christ that he belonged to benefited greatly. So did Bible colleges that received gifts and endowments, as well as the young men whose tuition and books the colonel paid for in order to send them through training to become ministers. Colonel Sanders made money so he could give money to God. Amen. Fifth, if you do what you do for Jesus, you'll work so that you can give generously to others in need. That's from Ephesians 4.28. Richard Wormbrand, the author of Tortured for Christ, was imprisoned by the communist government of the USSR. And he said that while in prison, he saw fellow Soviet believers practice generous giving. When we were given one slice of bread a week and dirty soap every day, we decided we would faithfully tithe even that. Every tenth week, we took the slice of bread and gave it to the weaker brethren as our tithe to the master. Sixth, if you do what you do for Jesus, you'll see yourself as a secret agent for God. Now, come on, folks, who doesn't want to be a secret agent for God? Wherever you are at work, at family gatherings, at community affairs, you can talk to people that wouldn't even think of talking to me. And if you share your faith gently and confidently, you too could be a secret agent for God. Seventh, if you do what you do for Jesus, you'll work as servants of others. We're told in Ephesians 6, 5 and 6, 
Obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. This passage is saying that when you go to work, the person behind the main desk or in the main office is Jesus to you. You're not working for the man, quote unquote. You're working for Christ. And so everything you do at the shop or the office is done as if you are doing it for Christ himself. And when you learn this kind of servant attitude, God is pleased. Jesus was once asked by his disciples who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied in Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you must be a servant. Eighth and lastly, if you do what you do for Jesus, you will work so that you can bring praise to God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. People should be able to watch us work and see how well we do our job and just know that we're Christians. And that should make them a little jealous, quite frankly, of what we have with God. It might even open the door for a conversation where you could tell them about Jesus and who he is and what he is to you. Let's take this to a conclusion, shall we? Dr. Martin Luther King made this powerful observation. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or as Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Can you see why this idea of working for the glory of God and not yourself is countercultural? Can you see that taking pride in your work because it's for the Lord and not yourself is countercultural? Can you see that when you work, we are called to act in a way that honors God? And that is countercultural as well. I hope you can see that. I really hope you can. But there's one key thing that has to happen before you can work for the glory of God. You've got to know him first, beloved, and I don't mean know of him. You've got to personally know him. And how do you do that? By simply praying to him, confessing your sins to him, repenting of those sins, turning away from them, choosing to walk a different path that is in the opposite direction of that kind of lifestyle. Be baptized, immersed under the water in the likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection and rise up in newness of life. Find yourself a Bible teaching and preaching church and get plugged in and learn. You can do this, beloved, and we'll be praying for you. Until next time, we appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much. Have a blessed rest of the week. I hope this message will be a motivation for you as you continue to serve in whatever capacity you work, whether it's your family, another job, whatever you do, you do it as if you're doing it unto the Lord. And watch what happens. To God be the glory. And all his people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.